Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. I'll begin to read from verse 1. We'll read through the whole chapter. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. For that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, 
those having seizures and paralytics, and he, prayed, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Having read this passage, which is on the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, I wonder how your week has been. What has been your biggest temptation in the course of this week? Did you fight that temptation? Or did you yield to it? How long did your fight go on with your temptation? How long did you fight your temptation? I'm sure we've all had some temptation in this week, whether young or old, we've all um, experienced temptation. Here is what C.S. Lewis um, says about temptation. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do know, do know what temptation means. This is obviously a lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it, it would be like to go on for an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. And so this is a description of just what temptation is and what temptation means. Only Christ really knows what temptation is. Another question I would like to ask you this morning is, who do you follow? Oh, I mean social media. Um, who is it that, you know, you wake up and you say, I need to catch up with what they're doing? Is it uh, politics? Or is it business? Um, what's happening to the oil prices? Or is it social? Or is it just your cooking recipes? Or probably for those who are influencers, um, this is a way by which they kind of rally the support or, or they change or they influence the society into um, changing the way society thinks. They count the number of followers, they count the number of likes. And so influencers today are very eager and working aggressively to have as many subscribers as possible to their channel uh, and to seek to have as many updates as possible so that people keep on their trail following them. Who do you follow? Who influences you? Or probably it's not really an influencer for you. It's just 
an addendum, something that's just added on. You kind of just go to it as your, your end of day and it has little or no consequence. Today we'll be looking at the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, what it meant, and also what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at Matthew chapter 4 under three headings. The first is Jesus perfectly resisted sin. Second, we'll look at Jesus is worthy. And thirdly, Jesus' Jesus' call to follow him. And so, last time that we were looking at Matthew chapter 3, we saw how Jesus had been baptized and the voice from heaven that said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Immediately after that, from the passage that we have read this morning, we are told Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the battle begins. This is a battle scene. Right at the beginning, he engages with the fiercest of enemies. Sadly, at this point, the evil one comes in boldly and aggressively and confronts the Son of Man. And so immediately what we hear there is that the tempter, in verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, And so the fight was on, the fiercest fight that could ever be. In fact, the most significant fight that would ever be because loss of this fight would have meant loss for us for eternity in terms of God's redemption plan. And so Jesus' first task here was to meet the tempter. The timing would not have been any more difficult than this. We are told that he had been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. I'm told that scientifically this is the longest time that one can ever stay before their body begins to have irreparable damage. And so Jesus really at that point when in terms of his physical strength he's at his weakest, the evil one pounces on him. He was just like us. So to say in that statement that he was hungry is really an understatement. He was 100% man. He grew tired. He grew hungry. He grieved like any one of us. And at this point, we are told that um, the, the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. This was something that God himself um, had directed him towards, to go and meet this combat um, um, battle with the evil one. This was, God's, this was part of God's redemptive plan. A summary of the story of the Bible is really God's kingdom triumphing over the kingdom of this world. And this is what we see right at the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The evil one attacked with all his venom, with all his might, are seeking to bring him down, just as he did for Adam in the garden. Remember Adam and Eve? How the evil one came and tempted? Or Israel, as they went through the wilderness and they also failed um, to, 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 to the evil one's temptation. In this passage, what we primarily see is not so much that Jesus is being questioned about his identity, as we normally understand this passage to be. No, this is This passage really brings out 
the Christology, who Jesus is. It helps us understand who he truly is so that we can come to him and worship him as he is. It is because Jesus personally resisted sin that he is at perfect sacrifice. It is not where we come to learn how to fight temptation primarily. This is not a passage where Jesus came to just model or to show us or to illustrate to us how to fight temptation. No, no, no. This is a unique occasion when Christ fights and Christ stands at that point where he shows that he is that last Adam. And so we see in this passage, Jesus identifies with us in facing temptation. He who was holy, he who was supreme, he who has existed from all eternity came down to bear temptation in the way that we do. And he resisted temptation to the very end, that he would be that unblemished sacrifice of God. And so we see that there are three temptations. The first is about bread. The second, um, he was put up on this high pinnacle. And the second, he was shown all the holy cities. Um, He was taken to the holy city uh, and told that he'd be given all that there is. These three temptations, particularly, were trying to show how, um, were trying to tempt the Messiah to be a Messiah unlike who he had come to be, but one who the people desired him to be. And so um, the first temptation focused on the people's needs or his immediate personal needs. The second, on him being that public spectacle that would overwhelm everyone, that would stun everyone, that would kind of bring on a fame. And the third one was to gain that authority. If you are the Son of God, um, if you bow to me, I'll give you all that there is. And so these three temptations are primarily to cause Christ to be a redeemer or to be a messiah in the way the world wanted him to be, not in the way that he had come to be. Dear Carson says, to understand the temptation, it is important first to look at the temptation, but also to look at the response that Christ gives to it. And so verse 3, the tempter came to Satan, to, to Jesus, and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The temptation came from outside Jesus. It is important for us to understand that this is the only way that Jesus would ever face temptation. This temptation is not so much to doubt the fact that he is the Son of God. I know when you read that passage, if you are the Son of God, the sense is, oh, this was maybe Jesus doubt, to doubt that he's the Son of God, or even the evil one to doubt that um, Christ is the Son of God. That is not what it was about. This condition of phrase is really one that is um, a, an assumption of a true statement. Since you are the Son of God, um, he is trying to show to Christ that since this is who you are, affirm it by doing the following. He is reasoning to him and saying, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Since you are the Son of God, do what you want to do. Do anything out there. He's tempting Jesus to be a Messiah, but in a different way. This was an opportunity for him to show his power. 
He was hungry. He had not eaten for so long. He was tempted at this point to self-gratify, to be self-reliant, to, to, to get what he wants in the moment. But this is not the Messiah that Christ was meant to be. He came not to serve himself, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. Just like the temptation um, in the garden to Adam and Eve, the, the evil one came claiming God's word. Did God really say uh, you cannot eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden? Uh, in the garden, what we see here is also the evil one coming, and he's seeking to tempt um, Adam, uh, to tempt Christ, uh, to fall and so to to break God's word. Now, which particular part of God's word was 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 Jesus breaking? Wasn't it okay for him for him to eat food? It was. He could have eaten food. That wasn't the temptation. The temptation was to be self-reliant. The temptation was towards self-gratification. In sidestepping this, this um, temptation, or rather, if he, if he fell into this temptation, he was really going to be dependent on himself and seeking to do that which will gratify himself. A Messiah unlike that which God had um, sent him to be. And so we see here, Christ stands, and Christ quotes the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Adam failed in the garden. Israel failed, and they grumbled against, against God. But Christ stood. He said, he humbled himself. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know the man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Christ is saying, my dependence is upon God's word. He's referring here to the word of God as that which God used at creation, at that which God uses to preserve all that there is. He was not reliant on himself. He says, my dependence is completely, is entirely upon God's word, and I do his bidding. What astounding words that Christ puts up. He does not give in to self-reliance. Maybe that is where we are. Maybe that was your greatest temptation this week, your reliance on yourself, your reliance on your finances, your reliance on your job, your reliance on yourself in your relationships. Well, how is this seen? In the fact that we don't depend on God's word, in the fact that we don't come before God seeking his help in all of these. We are reliant on self. Well, Christ here did not depend on himself. What would dependence on God look like in your life? It is your pleading in prayer for, him, for God's grace. It is not seeking your own comforts in the moment. It is seeking what is God's will. It is not giving in to your own entertainment, to your own pleasures, but what exactly would God have me do? Christ triumphed in this first temptation. So it's almost a 1-0 match. In the second, which is a religious temptation, Jesus is here 
asked to raise to actually the highest place, we are told in verse 3, sorry, in verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now it just doesn't end there. Satan quotes scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. We see scripture quoted in many places, and often when we think we see scripture, we think, well, it must be right. Even the devil quotes scripture in this passage. We see that he uses scripture to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. What boldness that the evil one shows. He tempts him here to self-protect himself. He tempts him here to, to stand out and, and, and get his fame by showing that he is protected by the angels. And so he asks Jesus to, um, to, to just let himself fall, to cast himself down, and immediately he'll be held up by the holy angels. The passage he quotes here is a glorious passage. It's Psalm 91. I'll read verse 12 and verse 13 of Psalm 91. It reads, On their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, and your young lion and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Listen to how verse 13 sounds like. Very familiar. It's almost like a Genesis 3 passage where the where the Lord is talking about or is promising the triumph that will come over the evil one. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The evil one quotes scripture, but he quotes it in part. And he quotes it in ways that would uh, skew its meaning. What the evil one was trying to do from this passage is to tell Christ to use God's promises to his own end, to his own self-protection. And Jesus responded, and Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, which says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. What happened at Massa? Well, we know that Israel had just crossed the Red Sea. God had given them manna, and what did the people do? They cried for meat. They said to him, Is the Lord surely among us? We do not have meat, and so on. So, the, so Israel grumbled and failed um, at this point. What, what we see in this temptation is, is a cry for self-protection. Or really, it's a cry to have God at our terms and at our timing. Like the way you know, the cartoon of the genie, you rub the genie and it gives you just what you want. That is the God that we see at this point. It's a God who um, suits our needs and our conveniences. A God who does what we want. And if he doesn't do what we want, is the Lord surely among us? Jesus, we see here, being tempted to control the promises of God. Jesus was tempted to put God to the test 
as, as we see in the response that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. Having God at our terms or putting ourselves in harm's way um, in order to test God. Our daily lives afford us with many illustrations where this is true. We constantly plead for us who have parents um, for the care of our children, and yet we neglect to bring them under the instruction of God's word. We neglect our family altar. We neglect that instruction that comes from God's word, and yet we pray for protection. This morning, we had a class downstairs on um, parenting, and there were a number of empty chairs in that class. I think this is a place where parents should be if they will be not testing the Lord with their children, but actually seeking uh, that the Lord would bring up these children in the, in the instruction of the Lord. Other ways that we do this, students, those who are in school, the whole term, the whole semester is kept busy with other things. And what happens on the exam day or as you're entering the exam? You are praying desperately that the Lord would grant you success. After all, he has said in his word that he will grant success to those who are his children. This is another way that we test God. Or probably you're praying for your own growth as a Christian, your own maturity as a Christian, and yet you neglect church attendance. You neglect the reading of God's word. You neglect prayer. The Bible says you shall not test the Lord your God. The devil is persistent. So this was 2-0. The evil one had again failed. But he doesn't relent. He doesn't give up. He persists. At this point, he even drops his mask. And he, he comes with, with all his ferocity and with such desperation in the third temptation. We see this from verse 7. Sorry, um, from verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is typical of the evil one. He is a liar from the beginning. And so even here, he, he seeks to give of that which is not his own. And so he says to Christ, if you only bow down and worship me, I will give you all. What is the temptation in this? He's saying to Jesus, you can have the crown without suffering. You can have the crown without the cross. And so Jesus here is, is tempted to rule, but not in the way that he was designed by God to come and rule, in the way that he was designed to come and redeem us as his people, and then later to rule. He had come firstly that he would save us from sin. His first coming was not to rule. His first coming was to come and be one who will redeem his people from their sin. But the evil one here was calling him to a self-exaltation, to be one who will rule without suffering, to have a crown without the cross, to almost get what he needed or what, what he would get with impatience, uh, more than to wait for that which God would later on exalt him to that place that is highest above all else. In all these temptations, what we see 
is that Christ is not being tempted about who he is, but how he will accomplish that which he was called to accomplish, to be the redeemer of the world. We see Christ standing in all the temptations. And praise God for all of us. As you look back in this last week and you see the ways that you have failed, thank God for one who did not fail, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what lessons do we learn from the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Firstly, that he is our champion. He is our representative. Adam, our first representative, failed. Christ, our last Adam, he has succeeded. He stood against the evil one, and he is the sinless one. We see here the picture of Christ and his temptations. Now, this is only but a small picture of all the temptations. Christ suffered temptation all of his life, even to the point of the cross. Remember when he was on the cross, Matthew 27, when the crowds taunted him and hurled insults at him, and they said to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This was, again, temptation upon temptation on the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus was willing to suffer, was willing to hang on the cross and bear the full punishment for your sin and for my sin. He endured to the very end. And so firstly, Christ is our champion. Christ is our representative. Secondly, by resisting temptation, Jesus explored the path of temptation right to its very end. By resisting temptation, Christ felt the reality, the severity of temptation in a way that we would never face it. He took on all our suffering. We resist only to a point and we fall, but Christ resisted completely. What does this teach us? Well, it teaches us that sometimes suffering is the way that we need to go. I know this doesn't, is not calling you to be one who gets excited about suffering, but if, it's, if suffering is for the sake that I will not sin against God, I would rather suffer than sin. And so Christ here took on our suffering completely. Temptation also is not sin. So what we learn from this passage is that temptation is not sin. Often when we're going through temptation, we think maybe God does not love me. Maybe God is, is, is turning his back against me. But just as in this case, we see that Christ was loved by the Father. In fact, the last statement in chapter 3, God says, Behold, this is my beloved Son. And here he immediately goes into temptation. So temptation is not sin, and temptation doesn't mean that we are loved any less by the Father. Jesus here models for us what resisting temptation looks like, as we have said. Jesus also here uses the Scriptures to face temptation. So we see how we too can be strengthened and armed by the scripture. He who seeks to fight against temptation will be one who will spend much time meditating on the word of God. 
Do we flippantly wake up and go through our day without spending time looking at God's word? Well, we are easy prey for the evil one. But Christ here used, um, used the word of God to arm himself against temptation. Lastly, of our lessons from temptation, we see that we can derive much comfort from this because Christ is our high priest. He took on our punishment. He took on the full temptation that we would not be able to take on. And he was the blameless lamb that was sacrificed on the cross. He took our place and in exchange gave us his righteousness. And so we see that he is a high priest who sympathizes with us according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Um, he sympathizes with us because he knows what it is to be like us. He knows what it is to face temptation. Have you been buffeted in this week by temptation? Know that there is one in heaven who is your comfort. He knows what it is to be tempted in every way and to still have victory. And so we can persevere to the very end knowing that Christ is our champion, knowing that Christ is our high priest. Immediately after that, we turn now to Jesus as one who is worthy. We're told that John the Baptist is arrested. So our second point is Jesus is worthy. John the Baptist was arrested, and at the launch, at this was the launch of Jesus' ministry. This is the beginning of the climatic ministry of the end of our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ appears on the scene. The death of John the Baptist, or the arrest of John the Baptist, is really like that starting gun at which Christ kind of leaves the starting mark and begins his ministry. What are we told? We're told that he withdraws to Galilee. Interesting. We'd expect him to be heading to Jerusalem, but Christ withdraws to Galilee. He left Nazareth to live in Capernaum. Why does Matthew go on about these geographical details in terms of where he traveled to and, 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 and just sketch the geographical map? Verse 14 gives us a response. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Jesus was going about his ministry as Matthew here, the author, writes down the book of Matthew. He's saying this is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Capernaum lay on the northern side of Galilee. So Jerusalem is to the south. Galilee is up north. And right on the tip, uh, northern side of, of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. This is where Jesus went. This was um, a place where um, Jews who really were mixed, a mixed group because of the various uh, times that they had been um, overrun by other people, so they were intermarried with other people. And so Jews from Jerusalem would call this place Galilee of the Gentiles, not so much Galilee of the Jews, uh, because those in Galilee uh, spoke Greek, and uh, most of them were influenced by non-Jewish influences. And so Jesus goes to this uh, town. We're also told there that it is by the way of, um, 
by the way of the sea. This phrase is actually a technical phrase saying, it is by the highway, it is by M1, or it's by A1, it's by, by your main highway. The highway which was the main trade route, the important trade route from the east to the west. It was a route that led from Damascus down to Egypt. And so the people in this town are said to be those living in darkness, under the shadow of death. It is very much like God. It is very characteristic of our God to go to those places where he is most likely to be found, where the Orthodox Jew would not expect him to be. This is where we find him, amongst the unreached masses of humanity, says one of the commentators, Michael Green. And so we see here uh, the author, Ma Matthew, quoting Isaiah chapter 9, which our brother uh, Emeka read for us much earlier. Um, and those two verses which describe exactly where Jesus would be, which is in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, um, that God would raise up a prophet amongst, uh, uh, who would be found amongst the people of Galilee. Now this is very interesting because this would not be what a Jew would write. This is not what you would write if you are writing history or if you are writing the scriptures. You would say Jerusalem, the seat of power. There you would find um, one who would be a prophet, one who would come as the Messiah. But instead here we find that he is one who is found in Galilee. Going back to the book of Isaiah, we see that um, Isaiah gives us a fuller picture of what this Messiah would be. Isaiah chapter 8 gives us a prophecy of the judgment that's to come. And Isaiah chapter 9 is really the deliverance of God. And he's saying in chapter 9 that a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, um, of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the Messiah that would come from, um, from Nazareth and would move to Galilee of the Gentiles, a city that was really thought very little of by the Jews. This is where the light would begin to be seen. Those living in darkness have seen a great light. A light has been dawned. This is one who is worthy, mighty God, Prince of Peace. He will come from this town that is unknown. It's a mission to the Gentiles. This would soon be what the church would be about, a mission to the Gentiles. If we look across this room and all of us who are gathered, it is really that mission to the Gentiles that has gone forth. Christ was in this picture way showing that actually these will be the beneficiaries of this gospel. People like you and me who have been in darkness. And so we can be encouraged by this to continue to, to, to spread the word of God to be those that are actually um, taking the gospel to unreached nations, particularly our neighbors or our friends, our workmates, because this is the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ here. He took the gospel to those who did not know him. We, we go on to see that um, Jesus had a message, and we see the message there in, um, there in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. I have a quote here from C.H. Spurgeon. So um, for those of you who like reading biographies, from the first time that I've read this quote, it has always excited me. Um, this is C.H. Spurgeon saying something about his grandfather. I shall never forget one day when my dear old grandfather was alive. I was to preach a sermon. There was a great crowd of people, and I did not arrive, for the train was, de was delayed. And therefore, the vulnerable man, implying his grandfather, commenced to preach in my stead. He was far on in his sermon when I made my appearance at the door. Looking to me, he said, you have all come to hear my grandson, and therefore I will stop and have him preach. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? My answer from the aisle was, I cannot preach the gospel better, but if I could, it would not be a better gospel. So here is a, a dialogue with uh, Charles and, and his grandfather saying, there is no other gospel. The words that we just read from the Lord Jesus Christ are the words that we heard two weeks ago. John the Baptist was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is no other message. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we are called to proclaim. This is the gospel that you are called to believe. This is the gospel that all through the ages has been preached. This is the gospel that we are custodians on, of, to call people to repent from their sins and to turn from, from their sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says there, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. This is the climatic end. Christ came to usher in this new kingdom. Israel, which was said to be the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, we know that in 70, 734 BC, they were conquered by the Assyrians and then later by the Babylonians. Then there was a period of respite when they came back. Um, uh, and then later again, we find that the Romans were occupying uh, um, Jerusalem and this time they were under Roman rule. So they were eagerly looking forward to one who will come and emancipate them and give them freedom. And this message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is that person, but he did not come to rescue them politically. He came to rescue them from the wrath of God. He came to establish a kingdom in which God's rule and God's reign would be established in their hearts. Jesus is a promised Messiah who was to come in the line of David. He is one who was fully God and fully man. He is the one who is worthy. As we saw from chapter 1 and 2, he is the one uh, to whom the wise men from the east came and bowed down and worshipped. He is the one whose birth was uh, the culmination of prophecy from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah. He is the righteous one who will come to judge the world. He is the one who speaks with such authority. He is the one who, as we have just seen in Matthew chapter 4, the sinless one who resists the evil one to the very end. He is the one who has conquered sin. And so we see this Jesus um, at this point continuing to preach the gospel, and he 
He's walking by the Sea of Galilee in verse 18. And we see here Jesus' call um, to follow. Jesus' call to, to follow him. And so while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. This is uh, Simon and his brother Andrew. And then later he sees uh, John and he sees James. He calls them to come and follow him. These were his first disciples. This may not have been the first encounter with these men. Uh, we know from uh, the account in John that um, they had known about him or they had heard about him from John the Baptist. But here he calls them. And what is their response? Look at verse 20 and verse 22. If you can look at those two verses at the same time. Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Their response is exactly the same. It's a radical response. They turn to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They left their jobs. For James and John, they left their dad and immediately followed the Lord Jesus Christ. They considered Christ more worthy than their jobs. Sadly, for some of us, even this week, we consider our jobs of more importance than Christ. Well, we are called to follow him, and he says, I will make you fishers of men. Following Christ comes with being fishers of men. We are incomplete if we are followers of Christ and if we are not fishers of men. Implying our vocations, well, we are not called to leave our vocations, but in our vocations, we ought to be fishers of men. It doesn't mean that we should come out of our vocations or the many other relationships that we have, but that in those relationships, we should be fishers of men. We are not called to leave uh, our business, because that might mean leaving the fishing ground, but it is in those grounds that God has placed us to be those who are fishing men. Well, this passage is often used for people who think they have been called to ministry. I don't think that's what, that's what it means. This is a calling for all of us. All who are followers of Christ are called to be fishers of men. And so we see that this passage is a call to all of us as church members to be those who not only follow Christ, but are also fishers of men. What does this entail? In a small booklet by uh, C.H. Spurgeon called Fishers of Men or Winners of Souls, he says, fishers of men are people who are dependent or they're people who have faith. Why is this? When fishermen put their nets into the water, they don't see the fish but they put the nets in and they wait. And so there are men who are dependent on faith. Uh, they don't see the result, but they put out their nets. But there are also men who are diligent and persevere. Now, the fishermen that we're being called to here is not, you know, the Saturday afternoon lazing about with your fishing hook uh, and, 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 so, and, and the gone fishing sort of thing. No, this is the actual trade of fishing. What Peter and John and James, and, uh, and, and James were engaged in, which is the, the weathering the harsh weather through the night, 
uh, the cold and wet nights of fishing. That's what we have here. So being fishers of men is about us being diligent, about us persevering in that which God has called us to, uh, to go out and seek that men might come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. In the same way, we are also told here that um, we are also to be fishers of men. That means that our work should be in season and out of season. Wherever God places you, we ought to be those that are letting down the nets. Or we ought to be like James and John here with their father Zebedee, cleaning the nets. A place like this is how can I sharpen myself to be better equipped for me to go out in the week and again share the gospel. We see that it is not us who makes ourselves fishers of men. Christ says, I will make you fishers of men. He gives us a message. He equips us. And ours is to follow him. Those who are called are called to obey him. This also means that our priorities must change. For us as a church, what does it mean for us to be a church that is full of fishers of men? Well, that means that we must be a church that has a culture of missions, a church that is thinking about the spread of the gospel to other nations. How do we do this? In our prayers, in our giving, in the way that we spend our time. Are you willing to spend of your time to invite an unchristian to church? Or maybe to give a ride to someone uh, who needs to come and hear the gospel? Are you out there being fishers of men? Is our conversation about <clears throat> how can we can better be fishers of men, equipped to be those that will better be fishers of men? At the close of Jesus' earthly ministry, this message was central to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 and verse 16. Take note of the location. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mount to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see that this was the central message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can the church exist apart from this message? If this is central to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, this ought to be front and center for us as a church. This ought to be part of our normal discussion. This ought to be part of what people see um, about us as a church, a church that seeks to plant other churches, a church that seeks to go out with the gospel, a church that is missions-minded, a church that pulsates with the spread of the gospel, a church that's devoted to making disciples, of being disciples and making disciples. What was the effect of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? We see in um, the last few verses, in verse 23 and 24, what Jesus did. He taught, he proclaimed, and he healed. We also see that he, he healed 
every disease, every affliction, every oppression, um, seizures, uh, paralytics. Uh, we also see that his reach of, of his ministry was throughout all Galilee, all C Syria, and great crowds from all Judea, from all Galilee, from all Decapolis, Judea, and Jerusalem. And so we see Christ's fame continue to grow. This is the Messiah. Jesus addressed the biggest need, the deepest need. Not political need, not a need for food, not a need for self-satisfaction, but the fact that we have offended a holy God. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, that we have offended a holy God, that we were desperately in need, and that we needed a substitute, and that he had triumphed with the evil one in the wilderness, that he had triumphed on the cross, and that he was our substitute. All we need to do is to repent from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would bring upon us healing. Yes, we see that here he healed many of their diseases. This was just a picture of what he was going to do in our souls, that he was going to bring us from the dead, and that he was going to give us new life. Are you here today and you're not a Christian? Christ can give you life. Christ comes that he would be your substitute, that he would be that sinless one who takes your place on the cross and gives you his righteousness. Will you follow him? Will you turn from your sins and trust in Christ today? Brothers and sisters, I know what temptation feels like and what it is to struggle with temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we have yet is without sin. Therefore, let us draw nigh to him with confidence. Let us in our struggle against sin go closer to Christ. Let temptation be that which draws us closer to Christ. Let, us, let temptation be that which causes us to lock arms with Christ, to be those that are truly united with Christ and seek to hide ourselves in him, he who faced temptation and was without sin. And so he should be our comfort as we go through temptation. As we see brothers or sisters facing temptations, point them to the Savior. Show them the Lord Jesus Christ. Show them what he did on the cross. Show them that he did this, that they would not continue to indulge in their sin, that they would not continue to be in the mire, in the dirt, uh, to, to, to be those that are stricken by sin. Christ came that we would know what it is to have victory in him because he triumphed completely. And so we are called to trust in him and to trust him completely. As we follow him in the course of this coming week, Christ calls us to be fishers of men. Are you a follower of Christ? My next question, are you a fisher of men? What opportunities will God bring to you this week? Will you be one who proclaims the mysteries of Christ, 
calling others to come behold the wondrous mysteries of Christ. Come and have a foretaste of the heavenly dwellings here on earth. Come and experience the grace and love untold that is offered to sinners. That is the only message that we have. That is the message that Christ has called us to, to proclaim repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, I pray that you'd be faithful. Oh, I pray that we would not only follow Christ, but that we would truly be fishers of men as Christ calls us to. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we approach your throne of grace with confidence. We thank you for the good news that you sent your Son, that he became flesh and took on our sin. We thank you that he identified with us in every way. We thank you, Lord, that he was willing to bear our sin. We thank you that he calls us to follow him we thank you that we can identify with him, that he can be our representative, that he can be our champion. We thank you that he is our high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of, of God. And so we pray that, Lord, we would even this week be a people that continue to fight sin, a people that long and look forward to that new Jerusalem where there will be no sinning, a place where we'll dwell with Christ forever. And so, Lord, to that end, we pray that we'll be a people that persevere, a people that call out to others who do not know Christ, that they too might come to know the glories of Christ our Savior. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song. Come, behold the wondrous mystery.